0: If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at infodenverchurch.org. At to get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching.
1: So last week, as I'm driving home from work, I pull into my garage and I have a text message from a friend that says that she just joined a women's group. And I'm really excited because This is a friend I pastored at another church who's been looking for her community for a really long time. She has tried and tried and tried to find her people, and she has just really struggled. So I'm sitting there watching the ellipses on my text messages, waiting for the next message to tell me that she's finally finding her people. I'm waiting to have sort of this sigh of relief and celebration alongside her. And then the next text message comes through and she says, one of the women in my group is struggling with bipolar. She opened up to the group about the ups and downs that inevitably come with this disease, and the group responded by telling her that she needs to repent of her anger issues. My heart sank. My anger twirled out of control within me because what I know is that my friend struggles with bipolar too. And as I'm grieving with my friend, as I'm grieving for my friend, as I'm grieving the kind of religious system that looks at people who are suffering and says, but did you deserve it? I couldn't help but think of my own brushes with this kind of broken system. I thought about my sister who, in 2022, was diagnosed with a very rare form of brain cancer. She went in for an emergency surgery, and after more than 20 hours, the surgery didn't go as planned. When she woke up, her team told us she had a 50-50 chance of survival. My sister went on to spend more than 11 months in the ICU. She had nine additional brain surgeries. And she just kept getting infection after infection after infection, and it felt like this was going to go on forever. Now, all along the way, we had so many people who came alongside us, who grieved with us, who sat with us in the darkest moments of my life to this point, who prayed with us, and who sat with my sister in moments that quite literally threatened to be her last. And in one of these moments, a family friend said, do you think that your sister would like to take communion? And I said, I think my sister would love that. She's a pastor's wife, a very devout woman, and I think that communion would would bring such joy to her. So, As I'm sitting in this hospital room alongside my sister and this family friend, listening to the hums and beeps of different machines that are keeping my sister alive, as I reflect on the death and resurrection of Jesus, this woman turns to my sister and says, you know, Lindy, there's been a lot of people praying for these infections to be healed. Let's talk about if there's some sins you need to repent of so God can heal you. Y'all. I did not yell at anyone. I did not throw tables, but we did have a come to Jesus moment at that time. These are the stories that I carry with me as I come to this passage in Luke. Luke. This morning, we'll be reading from Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. If you prefer a paper Bible, you will find one under the seat in front of you or around you. And here's what our text says Now, there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than any others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. And if not, then cut it down. When I hear this parable, it feels really familiar. And I'm not sure why it feels so familiar, like I've heard it a million times. Because actually, this parable is only recorded in the book of Luke. It's just that tiny little section there. And actually, it's only in your New Testament one time. Yes, Mark and Matthew also have stories of fig trees in their gospels. But in their gospels, that's the fig tree that Jesus curses. This is a different fig tree. This is a fig tree that Jesus tells a story about. But I can't help but shake that this feels like it's everywhere. Is that because those preachers who kind of pride themselves on that firebrand gospel turn to this parable over and over and over again at the turn of every tragedy, as they bury people already drowning in their suffering, as they tweet out things like, you better turn lest you be the fig tree in Jesus' story. How did we get here? And not just us. How did Jesus' first audience get here? They tell this horrific story about Pilate murdering Jews in their own temple as they're making sacrifices, and they sort of ask Jesus without asking, but did they deserve it? You know, I think there's also a second question there. See, at this point in Luke, we're following Jesus to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And I think we've talked a lot at DCC about what the Jewish expectation was in the first century for a Messiah. The Savior was going to be a king. The Savior was going to come and overthrow Rome. The Savior was going to go to Jerusalem and take back the land, and Israel was going to live as a free people. So part of me wonders if the other question Jesus' audience is asking is, Jesus, are you going to do something about Pilate? Did you see what he did in the temple? Are you going to Rome to take care of this? Or are you going to Jerusalem to take care of this? And I think Jesus gives them an answer they don't want and they're not looking for. Because Jesus turns to them and tells them to repent or literally to change their minds. You might be familiar with an idea of Pax Romana or Peace with Rome. This idea of Pax Romana was that those who inhabited the land of Rome could live at relative peace so long as they paid taxes to Rome and they paid allegiance to Rome. But there's another idea that you might be a little less familiar with. That's this idea of Pax Diorum. That's peace with the gods. And peace with the gods and the Roman Empire looked like this: You worshipped the gods. You didn't do anything to upset the pantheon of gods. And if you did, boy would you pay? So I think part of Jesus' answer is, I'm not going to Jerusalem to overthrow the Roman government. I'm not going to take back the land. And by the way, you all are being called to repent. I think Jesus is being really practical here. You know what happens when you rebel against Pax Romana? Rome takes you out. And then I think Jesus is adding in a second story because Jesus wants to talk about something a little bit different. He doesn't want to talk about this tension of Pax Romana. He wants to talk about this problem of Pax Deorum. He wants to talk about this picture of the kind of God who's vindictive and angry and waiting to get you. And when I hear this story, I still can't help but think about repentance in the same way that Jesus' audience does. Which is funny, because if we look at the Scriptures, even from the very first book that we have, even from the book of Job, this is the first book that scholars believe is written, we have righteous Job who just can't catch a break. He just suffers and suffers and suffers, and we don't know why. And somewhere along the way, Job's friends come and decide they're going to help him. They're going to help him figure out what the sin is in his life so that he can stop suffering. And the book sort of pokes fun at them as they keep pulling out these different scenarios and calling Job to repent for things he did not do. In the end, we're left kind of sitting there scratching our heads because we don't know why Job suffers. We just know that he does we know that we suffer too. And Matthew echoes this idea when he says the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. And yet, I still find myself in my first reading of this parable imagining that God's mad. Now, I've added a little caveat to this, right? Because I don't say, did they deserve it? I say, Did they deserve it because they didn't repent? But is that really any different? And when I hear this parable, I picture myself as that fig tree. I imagine that I'm the problem. I imagine that Jesus is giving me this warning that God, the owner of the vineyard, is angry. And Jesus is there in the middle just kind of like pleading, give me just a little bit more time. Maybe I can straighten her out. And then I start to wonder, am I not supposed to hear repentance as a threat? Maybe it's not a threat. Maybe repentance is an invitation. And when I start to question this, I start to wonder, what did Jesus' first audience think about repentance? What did repentance look like to a first century Jew? I start to wonder if they heard something devoid of this idea of perishing forever. And I think they did. See, repentance is part of the Jewish way of life. I think that there's so much that we can learn about repentance from our Jewish brothers and sisters. Repentance, when John the Baptist shows up at the beginning and calls people to repentance, isn't a new message. They're not surprised by this message. This is something that is built into the Jewish calendar. At the Jewish New Year, There's 10 days leading up to what's called the Day of Atonement. These are considered the high holy days in Judaism. They are the most important days of the year. And what happens in those 10 days is that the Jews go back and see where they have caused harm in the world with their fellow brothers and sisters. They go back and figure out what repair might look like. They take seriously doing the work. And then they go to God on the Day of Atonement to atone for their sins. Donya Ruttenberg, a rabbi, spent time going through thousands of years of Jewish history to talk about this idea of repentance, to give us an idea of what repentance looks like. And she did this in the wake of the Me Too movement. She outlined five steps to repentance from a Jewish conception, both ancient and modern, and here's what she tells us. First, it's owning harm. Owning harm is not saying, I'm sorry, but. It's not saying, I know I did that thing, but here's why I did it. Owning harm is just recognizing what was broken. It's coming to myself and saying, I said a racist thing. I didn't really understand mental health, and I harmed somebody. It's saying, I didn't care for the planet in the way that I should have. It's anything in the world that we were responsible for that somehow we perpetuated harm in. And then beginning to change. What are my next steps? What do I do once I realize that I perpetuated harm in the world? That I was responsible for something? That I hurt people and I didn't mean to? Or maybe I did. Then it's making amends. If I set that racist thing, what do I need to do to figure out what my blind spots are? What do I need to do to make sure I can put something good where I put something that was harmful first? What do I need to do to take responsibility for what's mine to take responsibility for? And then you apologize. And then you make different choices. I don't know about you, but when I think about repentance from my Christian perspective, what I have understood repentance to be is confession, so step one, and then skipping to four and five, apologizing and doing something different. But actually doing the work, I don't think I was really taught how to do that. But I think it's very important. And as I look at these steps, I kind of hear the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who said, salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you everything. That's the kind of repentance we're called to. We're not called to flippantly apologize. We're called to come alongside God and create healing in a broken world. And I can't do that unless I'm willing to put in a little bit of work. When I imagine this kind of repentance, I actually find it incredibly hopeful. I think that the kind of repentance that Jesus is calling his audience to is more similar to what Rabbi Rettenberg says in her book. Profound healing can happen. Individual lives and relationships can be transformed. Communities and cultures can move towards care, accountability, restoration. Institutions can do the work needed to protect the people they serve. Nations can face the truth of what they have done, even if the work is imperfect, messy, or haphazard and can make the choice to write a new story for tomorrow. Repair is possible. Atonement is not out of reach. What is needed, and this is of course a great deal, is the willingness to do the work. What is needed is the bravery to begin. And as I think about this kind of repentance, as I think about myself and how I'm engaging with this parable, as I think about reading my 21st century Christian understanding of repentance into the mouth of an ancient rabbi, I wonder if maybe I've missed it. Maybe he's not turning to the guy who asked the question about the Galileans and saying, Look, man, wasn't because of their sin that that happened. And also, those at the Tower of Siloam who experienced what you and I would probably refer to as an act of God, that wasn't because of their sin either. But if you don't repent, look out. Maybe that's not what's happening at all. I start to rethink this parable a little bit. What if I'm not the fig tree? What if you're not the fig tree? What if Jesus' first audience is not the fig tree? What if the fig tree is what's broken? Maybe the fig tree is a system. Maybe it's the type of religious system that tells people who are hurting that they're hurting because of their sin or an angry God or because they didn't repent right. And maybe the vineyard owner is Jesus. Maybe after three years of his ministry, as he's going through and working with his fellow Jews and participating in the Jewish way of life, and people are still turning to him and saying, but did they deserve it? Maybe he's going, this is broken. This isn't bearing fruit. And maybe... We're the gardener. Maybe those ancient people listening to this rabbi are being invited to be the gardener. Maybe Jesus is saying, look, the system is broken. The problem's not religion itself. The problem is how we've cultivated it. And maybe it's an invitation to cultivate it different. And maybe that's true of religion and anything else that we've broken in the world. Maybe there's an invitation for us, as a gardener, to go, I totally see where I missed the mark. I totally see where I didn't pay attention to this thing I was responsible for in the way that I should have. Give me time to dig around, to fertilize, to care for this thing, in hopes that it will bear fruit. what would the world look like if that's how we understood repentance? And what would the world look like if we had a little more grace for our fellow gardeners? If we realize that sometimes we all neglect or miss the things we should have done. We all have blind spots. We all miss the mark and have this tree in our garden that isn't producing the fruit that it could. And what if we had a little more patience? What if we built the kind of community that counts on repentance, the kind of community that's willing to wait for my fellow gardeners to do the work? In the end, wouldn't we end up with a garden with way more trees bearing fruit. So, as I consider these stories I told you at the beginning, as I think about my friend and her group, what would it look like if one of the women from that group was confronted with what was broken? What if she realized, I think I have some blind spots when it comes to mental health? I think I missed it, and I harmed these women in my group. What if she started to do the work? What if she started to learn more about mental health? What if she figured out what making amends looks like for her? And maybe that's helping educate the rest of the group. Maybe it's being an advocate for my friend. And then she came back and apologized. What if then... She bought repair and made a space that wasn't a safe space. What if she then made it a safe space for my friend? And the woman in the hospital. I wasn't just mad. I was devastated. Because that woman is my friend. I have known her for decades. I know the darkest moments of her life. And I wonder when she had those moments, did she blame herself? I'm not mad at her. I'm mad at a system that's broken, that keeps telling us that there's an angry God that's waiting to get us all. So, yes, we had a come to Jesus moment we had a moment where we talked about why that wasn't the heart of God. Why my sister's sin was not the problem. And then we took communion together. Because what I believe a come to Jesus moment is, is a moment for repair, not a smackdown. As we think about these angry preachers who just keep... Perpetuating the same tired song and dance. Maybe that's the fig tree that's going to get cleared out of the garden to make room for something new. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you are a loving, compassionate God that you look upon what's broken in the world and you invite us towards a work of repair. I thank you for what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus, to be invited into healing the world. God, would you never stop coming to us with a call to repentance? Would each person in this room have a picture of the work that's ahead of them? Would each person in this room be surrounded by your love, by your compassion, and by your invitation to join with you, to garden alongside you, to take systems and harm and brokenness and to create a world of healing and hope? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you all to come and participate in communion with us. Um, As a few notes, the bread is gluten-free. In the short glass, you'll find juice, and in the tall ones, wine. But as you come this morning and participate in Eucharist, I want you to imagine what this kind of world would look like, what this kind of faith would look like, what this kind of repentance actually looks like. An invitation from a loving God. In Matthew, the text says this. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Come as your lead.